electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Tonight on this CNBC special hour, a deep dive into all things energy, looking ahead at oil, gas, renewables, and nuclear. What is in store for the new year? With your money, markets were mixed on this first day of the holiday shortened week. The Dow up a bit. Tech stocks, they fell again. Oil up, rising to a three-week high. Energy, the top sector for your money this year, even as the S&P on pace for its worst year since 2008. As stocks overall fell, your energy costs are likely going higher. How rising electricity costs could have your wallet feeling the heat this winter. Plus, the great Dan Jurgen on what is likely to happen with Russia and the CEO of EQT, America's largest natural gas producer. Hello and welcome, everybody, to this CNBC special, Taking Stock 2023. I am Brian Sullivan. Jim is off tonight and all week. We will be with you all week long right here at 6 p.m. each night, focusing on a different topic. Well, tonight something close to us, and that is a deep dive on energy, all the big topics, and really what a year it has been. In an otherwise terrible year for stocks overall, the once left for dead oil and gas names have been the moneymakers. In fact, 10 of the top 11 stocks in the S&P 500 this year, they're oil and gas. They're led by Occidental Petroleum, Oxy, which has more than doubled, followed by Hess, Marathon Petroleum, ExxonMobil, and SLB, formerly known as Schlumberger. That rounds out the top five. Also note, America's largest solar company, First Solar, also on the top 10 list. It has been all about energy, however you cut it. And that is one of the big themes for next year. How will the more than $300 billion in tax credits in the Inflation Reduction Act impact our energy production and investment? And will some of the renewable stocks really be able to start to take off and make you money. Well, some of the other key questions and themes for next year that we will talk about this show, Russia's role in global energy, and if the sanctions and price cap will really work as intended. Will OPEC cut production again? Can Europe escape its energy crisis without an economic collapse? And how will China and Japan impact global demand for oil and American natural gas? There is a lot ahead so let's kick it off now. Joining us, our friend Salima Croft, Global Head of Commodity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets, and Bob McDowley, founder and president of Rapidant Energy Group. Halima, 
Let's kick it off with you because you and Bob both have been an invaluable source for me and our network on this. Do you have any predictions or expectations for 2023? I mean, Brian, the big story for 2023 for oil is going to be the China reopening. I mean, this would be the significant tailwind for oil. It's actually amazing that oil held up as well as it did given how bad Chinese demand was this year. So if we do have this China reopening continue, even in the face of a health crisis in that country, that I would say is the biggest catalyst for oil going into 2023. You know, Bob, if somebody were to ask me, hey, can you make the case for $50 oil or $150 oil? I think I might just answer, yes, I can. Absolutely, Brian. Uh, You know, for the first time in my 32 years of counting barrels, I've never seen so much short-term uncertainty. I mean, normally when the oil market's dealing with a big exogenous shock, it's one thing, like a recession or a war in the Persian Gulf or Iran attacking Saudi Arabia. Now you've got two things hitting us, a very bullish one, this Russian disruption, which looms, is getting started. And on the bearish side, as Halima said, it's the China reopening, it's central bank tightening, it's macro headwinds. You can make a very good case for $50 a barrel in March. You can make a very good case for $150 a barrel in March. Uh, I've not seen anything like it uh, in my time in the oil markets. And again, to your point, Halima, somebody says, is China's reopening bullish or bearish for oil? And I will answer again, yes, because you can make the case either way, can you not? Because as cases go wild, people may self-lockdown. I mean, that is the key question. I mean, do you have a major public health crisis in China that essentially is, you know, bearish for oil? But I think, you know, when we're looking at this, we would still come out and basically say, if this reopening continues, if the Chinese government is prepared to push forward, even with rising COVID case counts, we think potentially, though, the floor is in for oil. We've seen the lows. And we do have this other story, as Bob pointed out. What happens with Russia? I mean, Vladimir Putin was out today essentially saying that he's going to cut off anybody that abides by the price cap. Now, it's kind of ambiguous. What does that exactly mean? Because he also gives himself the kind of exemptive authority. So is he really going to cut off a refinery like Reliance in India that pays at $60 or below? We have to wait and see. But certainly with natural gas, the Russians did yeah. make good on their threats to cut off consumers. Yeah, but, but it's Halima. I'm going to quote Halima Croft to Bob yeah. McNally. As Halima has noted, natural yeah. gas is small for Russia. I mean, it's big overall, yeah. but compared to oil, it's fractional. We'll talk to Dan Jurgen in the next block about a little more about Russia and oil, Bob. But do you think and would you agree with Halima that the lows in the price of oil are likely in? We made the bearish case, but the bullish case seems a little stronger. I think so. And, and here's why. You know, uh, I, want, I don't want to call it a, a, a put yet, a Saudi put or an SPR put. Yes. But let's talk about Saudi Arabia and OPEC. For the first time since 2014, I think Saudi Arabia is ready, willing and able to act preemptively and almost alone with a few producers. Yeah. Why? Two of its big problems since 2014 are solved. Shale was growing too fast. Yeah. Not a problem anymore. Russia was unwilling to cut under shale. Not a problem anymore. If we have a recession or a downturn, I think Saudi Arabia is willing to put in a floor. Then you have the DOE. The team Biden is saying, look, uh, producers, go ahead and produce more because what DOE will be refilling at 70. I'd like to see that before I believe it in any meaningful size. But nevertheless, those are two new uh, elements which, to Halima's point, suggest not only the lows are in, but Saudi Arabia, OPEC plus and to some degree, the SPR have your back and have a floor. Halima. 
No, absolutely. And I think Prince Abdelaziz has really shown that when he comes out and makes statements about willing to be proactive, take him seriously. So if we do get another recession fear coming into the market, I think OPEC can meet very, very quickly to put in a floor. So I will be paying very close attention, as will Bob and you, obviously, Brian, to the statements made by Prince Abdelaziz. He does back words with action. We've seen that consistently throughout yeah. this year. The next formal meeting, though, Halima, is not until June. So it's this they were doing that sort of Federal Reserve monthly thing, virtual. Yes. They were in person. Then they weren't, by the way, uh, even though I think we both flew over there. Do you, <laughs> do you see, is OPEC likely to maybe, if, if oil goes back to 70, jump in out of the blue in, in February or March with a cut? I think OPEC will act very quickly if they believe that there's going to be another major macro sell-off. They do not want to see this market get away from them. And I don't think they're going to wait till June if they believe that the fundamentals require really quick course correction. So I think June is when we're scheduled to meet. But again, if we have another yeah. downturn, OPEC can quickly get the band back together. Very, very quick final comment from you, Bob, because you mentioned Russia. We were there covering the sanctions. It wasn't like you flip a light switch and things happen. How long will the Russia sanction slash price cap impact take to play out? I know you don't know for sure because it's never been done. What's the best estimate? We, we probably have to start really start thinking about the end of the first quarter of 2023, okay. early second. Why? The real kicker is going to be the product ban on February 5th. And there's a grace period, so really they have until April 1. But Russia is going to have real trouble redistributing that diesel and that those products it now sends to Europe, about a million barrels a day total. That's going to be a lot tougher. We're seeing the crude go off to over 20 percent drop in December, according to Vortex data from November. But boy, the, the real kicker is going to be the yeah. product. So I think, Brian, we'll see the whites of the eyes of the Russian disruption. Uh, it'll be well into the first quarter of 2023. I, I just you do worry that is, is Europe, yes. whatever you want with Europe and Ukraine, are they kicking themselves in the teeth with diesel when they've already got a diesel issue? We'll find out. Halima and Bob, thank you both very much. We'll get yeah. more Dan Jurgen in just a moment. But as we mentioned at the top of the hour, it was a mixed day overall for the markets and your money. Let's hit on it. The Dow was up a touch. The S&P 500 and NASDAQ were down again. Now, the S&P 500 is now just a few tenths of a percent from falling 20 percent this year. It's down 19.66% to be exact. The NASDAQ down a stunning 33%. More micro, it was another brutal day for Tesla investors. The stock fell another 11% today. It has now lost more than half its value in 90 days. In fact, today marks seven straight losing sessions for Tesla. And folks, do not blame the messenger, but Tesla is on pace for its worst month, worst quarter, and worst year Ever. Now, it's not just Tesla. All the biggies getting rocked lately, Apple, Amazon, Google, all losing at least a quarter of their value just this year. Let's hope next year is a better one. All right. Now back to global energy markets, because as we just referenced today, Vladimir Putin reiterated that Russia will not sell any oil to countries who are adhering to the new price cap on Russian crude. All this as Europe begins to drain its natural gas storage Many wonder where will it find enough gas for next year. Your next guest says this could be the end of the global energy market as we know it. Let's bring in now Dan Jurgen. He is vice chairman of S&P Global. You no doubt heard that previous conversation, Dan. Welcome. Right. What do you mean the end of the global energy market as we know it? 
for the last 30 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union, we've had a global market in which oil has pretty much moved around on based upon the economics. Exceptions were Iran and Venezuela. But now we have what I've called a partitioned oil market in which Russian oil can no longer go to its largest market, which is Europe. And the markets are being divided and that oil now is flowing east. And so it's and the U.S. actually was even importing, Brian, upwards of five, six, seven hundred thousand barrels a day of Russian oil because it made our refineries more efficient. That's over. So it's a divided, more politically charged uh, oil market today. I guess the billion or trillion dollar question is, Dan, will it ultimately hurt Russia or will they just fall in line with a new order? China, India, a little Turkey, Bulgaria, other nations like that have a have a full market for their oil. The West does its own thing. And we we see kind of a, a normalized energy market. But two of them separate. Right. In the world. Yeah. I mean, we'll see a reshuffling of barrels. Now, India will still take barrels from the Middle East. But a lot of those Middle East barrels will now flow uh, to Europe. But I think the point here is that Russia's, it's, Russia is going to lose money because of this. And in a, this oil price cap, at first, you sort of thought, can this work? But it seems it is going to keep oil flowing into the market and at the same time reduce Russian oil revenues. And I can be sure, we can all be sure that Vladimir Putin hates the idea that the Western countries, particularly the United States, are now setting the price or at least a price cap for his oil. Yeah, uh, but can he get around it? Because under and, and this is spectacularly complicated. So I know we're a TV show and it's tough to do it quickly. But the bottom line is that those selling oil just merely need to attest that they are not violating the price cap. Now, they can inspect documents and ships, but it feels like it would be something that would be easy to get around. Well, I, I think not. I think you're quite right. It's a kind of simple session. If, uh, if uh, Sullivan Oil wants to buy Russian oil, uh, it has to, uh, and you go to a, a, an insurer in London, you have to send a document saying, I bought it for under $60, and that's all. You're not reporting to a regulator. However, if it turns out that some other, you know, oil company actually says that they did it for under 60, mm. but they paid $72, then they're going to be in pretty big trouble with whoever is their national authority. So I think actually, you know, I think it's going to work. It's going to work for a while and it's going to work in an oil market that's weak and is oversupplied. Let me ask you one final question, Dan. Again, it's, it's a bigger one. Uh, and, you know, we're obviously constrained by time which is there will be a day when Vladimir Putin is gone. Maybe it's, uh, hopefully it's tomorrow. There will be a day when, when things change. What's the long-term implication of what's going on right now? Could, if Vladimir Putin is, is taken out or steps down or has disappeared tomorrow, does Russia come back to the global oil order or are they ruined for years? I think, I, I don't think they come back quickly. I mean, it's now not only the flow of oil, but it's the flow of technology and investment. And Europe has said that we don't want Russian energy. Now, it depends who his successor is and how the regime changes. But I think Europe is never going to be in the position of the high degree of dependence uh, that it had and that it's paying a high price for right now. Dan Jurgen, really looking forward to Zero Week, by the way. See you soon. Yeah. In Houston, Zero Week's going to be big, maybe the biggest ever because of everything that's going on. Dan, thank you very much. All right, this CNBC special, Taking Stock 2023, is just getting started. Stay with us.
Coming up, we're taking stock of energy all hour long. Next up, naturally, Nat Gas. Plus, political football, environmental saver, or both. Better known nuclear. And a renewable new year? We go green when taking stock returns. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, welcome back. If you are a viewer of our 5 a.m. show, we hope you are, Worldwide Exchange, you know about our RBI. It is our random but interesting find of the day, something that you may not hear elsewhere, but we believe it's something you probably should hear. And so we are bringing the RBI this week to right here on this 6 p.m. special week. So let's go, because something random and definitely a little bizarre happened over the weekend in New England, and it's actually still happening right now. They're burning oil, a lot of oil, to make electricity. Look at this. This is the data from New England's power grid operator yesterday on what they're using to make electricity. This was about 7.45 p.m. last night. It was 30% oil, 22% net gas, 21% nuclear. The remaining 27% was divided up among everything else, like hydro, wind, and even methane from burning trash. So if you live anywhere from Greenwich, Connecticut to Presque Isle, Maine, This is how you were getting the electricity to light or even heat your home. Well, why are we showing this to you? Because this is very unusual. In fact, on a normal day, New England burns basically no oil to make electricity. In fact, here's the data from the average month of October. Usually natural gas is about 48% of their power plant fuel. Nuke is about a third, followed by about 12% renewables, then everything else. Literally zero oil. 
We look at this data a lot, maybe not every day, but close. And we have never seen a time when this much oil, or almost any oil for that matter, was used to make electricity. Now, it happened a little bit earlier this year because five years ago, the grid operator had power plants go to a dual fuel mandate to make sure there was juice to keep the plants running. Now, that's a good thing. You want the plant running, especially when it's 10 degrees and it's dangerous outside. So all of you watching tonight who are in Boston or Concord or Bangor, you know that oil, probably from Texas or even overseas, may have been the reason your lights came on. And this is 2022. What's next? Whaling? Random and hopefully interesting. All right, let's talk more about it and focus on the natural gas side of things. Nat gas, by the way, up 40% year to date on pace for its third straight year of gains. Bring in Toby Rice, CEO of EQT, the largest natural gas producer in the States. Also, I think a guy who grew up in New England still has families there. It's not the end of the world that they're burning oil. I'm not sure. The fact that the lights stayed on is what matters, Toby. But it just seems insane to think that we have to go to oil because last time I checked, not a lot of pump jacks operating up there in the Granite State. And they don't need to be operating in the Granite State because guess what? We've got the biggest gas field in the world right next door in Pennsylvania. And we've got plenty of natural gas to send that way to Massachusetts so we don't have to be spending six times more for our electricity. So we don't have to be using uh, higher emissions fuel to do basic things like create electricity. We can use clean burning, cleanly produced natural gas sourced right here in America. And it's an amazing solution. And we can deliver this energy. All they need to do is, is, is build that pipeline or let us build it. And we'll build it to them and give, us, give them the cheapest energy in the country. And, and people come after me and they said, oh, it's a, you know, so you're just pushing fossil fuels. Let's be clear on what's going on here. You can make the argument that we shouldn't use any fossil fuels for the planet. Fine. That's a different argument. What I'm having you on to talk about, what the honest conversation we need to have is that you can talk all about renewables you want. But when we're burning oil and trash and trees to make sure the light and heat comes on, People, I don't think, realize this, this, Toby. And the fact that a lot of that is going to be imported by ship, that is, that is a far less green option than piping it in from where you are. Absolutely. And it's got people scared about uh, their electricity and whether that's even going to come on. Um, I think we need to take a step back and think about, you know, what are we really trying to do with this energy transition? And it starts by using the best fuel possible. And... It's crazy to me to think that we've got the best source of energy to create electricity. It's the cheapest, most reliable, and cleanest form to produce electricity. That's natural gas. Uh, but instead of building pipelines, we are accepting burning oil and trash. Um, it, it Clearly, there's a better way, and that's what we need to focus on. And you step back and you look around solutions around the world. If you care about climate change, if you care about emissions, look at the biggest source of emissions on the planet, and that's foreign coal. And guess what? Natural gas can replace that as well. And in doing so, you know, we would make a meaningful bite out of out of lowering the biggest source of emissions on the planet. We're almost almost 50 percent of our emissions come from coal. So they're really simple solutions that we can yeah. put into play. Yeah. We have the resource right here. We just need to make these things. The happen. reason I've been on the story is because when I when I look at the data 
When I and I don't want to go after specific parties or specific politicians, but when I hear people talk about the energy future and then I look at the data of what's actually going on and I even look at the projections from the IEA, which is extremely pro renewables, I don't see anything that is telling me that we're not going to be using that gas or oil in the next couple of decades. And yet when you listen to specific things, there are people I've met, very smart people, Toby, who think it's going to be 100% windmills in like three years. And I'm thinking the light and heat won't come on. Yeah, it's it's, it's probably one of the biggest um, misunderstandings is when we hear people think that we have the answers with solar and wind. Clearly, we do not. Europe has put themselves in a very terrible predicament because of their over-reliance on solar and wind. They can be good technologies, but you need to have a steady baseload of cheap, reliable power gen that's going to come from uh, fuels like natural gas. And so I think we talked about it last time, but, you know, the world is not ready to make that move. And, you know, just in the last 12 months, uh, solar and wind's inability to meet the world demand for energy has coal emission has caused coal emissions to skyrocket uh, over 500 million tons. Yeah. And that's wiped out yeah. every single benefit that we've received from solar and wind installations here in the United States in the last 15 years. This was so our one RBI. year of not this, addressing. This is our RBI yeah. the other day that the world has never used more coal than this year. I mean, hard to believe, but we've never even in the United States coal use was up. It just seems insane. But when you have a growing population that wants to live in a big house with heat or air conditioning, that's what you get. Toby Rice of EQT, really appreciate it. Tough, tough conversation, but that's the reality. Toby, thank you. Thanks, Sally. All right. On deck, with real risks of energy and power shortages, both in Europe, maybe even here, why aren't more people also talking about nuclear? Well, we will coming up. But as we had to break, look at this. 2022, the year of the fossil fuel stocks, oil and gas producer stocks up an average of 44% this year. You bought them, you made money. Solar ETF down 5%. So will that chart flip next year? Well, we don't know, but you do. So this leads to our Twitter question of the day. We asked you, which will be the better investment next year? Will it be the TAN solar ETF? Will it be the XOP, the biggest oil and gas exploration ETF, or will it just be cold, hard cash? We'll share your results after the break. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, welcome.
welcome back. With the fossil fuel ETF, the XOP, dramatically outperforming solar stocks this year, we were kind of curious as to how all of you out there would trade in the energy space going into next year, because what works one year doesn't always, in fact, sometimes rarely works the next year. So we asked you, what do you think will be the better investment next year? Will it be the solar stocks vis-a-vis the TAN ETF, the XOP, or just plain old cash? Well, probably some recency bias in here, but... 65% of you, I believe that is, said it's the XOP, that that will be the better investment in 2023. In fact, more of you thought cash might be better than the solar stocks next year. Eh, I don't know about that, but hey, we'll see in a year and we'll find out if all of you were right. So let's talk more now about renewables because there was a potentially huge breakthrough in energy recently. A nuclear fusion reaction at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab in California produced more energy than it took to generate, potentially unlocking the decades-old promise of fusion. Now, if this ever really occurred en masse, it could create nearly unlimited energy and, and I don't think this is an overstatement to say this, change the course of humanity, change the world. But it is still just a long-held promise. In the near term, If we are looking for reliable, zero-carbon-emitting energy, why aren't more people talking about nuclear power? It's actually going the other way. Many states trying to shut down their nuclear plants. California, by the way, gets about 8% of all of its electricity today from nuclear, but is still talking about shutting down the one plant which is making that 8%. That's Diablo Canyon. Let's talk more about it with Ted Nordhaus. He is founder and executive director of the Breakthrough Institute. Ted, why... Aren't more people talking about nuclear? Are we still, do we still have the three mile island Chernobyl on the brain? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a little bit of that. Uh, there's uh, some three mile island Chernobyl hangover, perhaps. Um, but, you know, I do think a lot of, a lot more people are talking about it now as a serious solution to address energy security and climate change challenges. And as you noted, you know, California just reversed course and actually decided to keep that Diablo Canyon plant online. They say just for another five years, but I think it's probably likely it'll be longer than that because California can't keep the lights on without it. Yeah. And there was a nuclear plant near where I grew up called San Onofre and and that got shut down. And I, you know, I I never really thought much about it, I guess, as as a kid or a young teenager. And now it's now it's gone. And you say, well, why can't we bring these back? And every time I get the answer, it's always people. We don't have the technicians anymore. They've retired and no one's training to become one because they're told the industry is going away. That sounds like a dangerous spiral, Ted. Well, uh, you know, there, again, there's some truth to that, which is, you know, if you tell people for, you know, 35, 40 years that uh, the industry is a dead end and we're not going to build any more nuclear power plants, um, you know, your workforce uh, atrophies, um, your knowledge of how to build them atrophies. And so if you want to start out up again, uh, you gotta, you've got to be serious about building new plants. You've got to be serious about training the workforce. You've got to be serious about you know, particularly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, you got to be serious about developing uh, a fuel supply that's not dependent on the Russians. Uh, a big chunk of the U.S. nuclear fleet today uh, depends on Russian fuel. 
So, um, yeah, you know, you can have a, a, a really uh, robust nuclear uh, um, electricity capability, um, but you have to decide you want it. Um, and if you spend 40 years uh, with, you know, a lot of politicians and others saying uh, we don't want it, this is what you get. And now we're being told this is what you're going to get down the road. And there's a lot of issues with there's no perfect energy source, is there, Ted? I mean, fossil fuels, they emit. They contribute carbon dioxide. They contribute to climate change and global warming. Solar panels, well, guess what? They're made, a lot of times, in Uyghur forced labor camps in China. Wind turbines, well, you need the wind to blow. There is no perfect energy source, but when I look at nuclear, I think this seems about as good as any if we can eliminate the Fukushima type risk. Is that possible? Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say, the Fukushima type risk uh, is pretty low risk. I mean, the um, World Health Organization says that literally there will be no excess deaths as a result of radiation exposure from Fukushima. Uh, it was a serious industrial accident, to be clear. Uh, we have industrial accidents of all sorts all the time, and actually nuclear accidents historically have been pretty benign. So, um, but, you know, we still have this sort of outsized public fear of radiation. It's often stoked uh, by ideological interests who are very opposed to the technology. Um, but when you look at the trade-offs and when you look at the alternatives, to your point, nuclear is a pretty good option. Uh, it doesn't emit conventional air pollutants. It doesn't emit greenhouse gases. It has a really small land use footprint. Even the mining for the uranium, because it's such a dense energy mm -hmm. source, uh, you need a lot less mineral uh, and other mi minerals and other mining uh, to produce the energy that you get from a nuclear plant than just about any other form yeah. of energy. So for all those reasons, pretty good choice. Yeah, and just one that just never gets any attention until maybe right now. Ted Nordhaus, Breakthrough Institute. We appreciate it, Ted. Have a great day. Thanks Happy so much New for Year. having me on. Thank you. All right, much more to come on the CNBC special Taking Stock 2023. Here's what's coming up next. Coming up, renewed interest? We take stock of a clean energy future. Plus, read that meter, how electricity prices may impact your portfolio. And holiday flights cause more than the typical frustration. Time to make sense of prices at the pump when we return on CNBC. Right, welcome back to the CNBC special Taking Stock, Renewable Energy. It is set to kick into high gear next year, with the International Energy Agency saying it could overtake coal as the world's biggest source of energy by 2025. Yes, we just said coal because hard to believe but true, but this year we used more coal than any time in human history in the world. Anyway, let's move past that and see how you can make money in renewables and bring in Sophie Karp, Director of Utilities and Alternative Energy at KeyBank. Sophie, it's good to have you on the Inflation Reduction Act just threw over 300 billion in tax credits at the renewable industry. I don't know much, but I know that somebody's going to benefit from that. Who will it be? For sure. And thanks for having me. Um, appreciate that. It's good to be on. 
Yeah, definitely the IRA has been a massive tailwind for the industry, but there is also headwinds from the policy front, uh, Brian. And in fact, uh, 2022 was indeed a perfect policy storm for the sector. Uh, on the positive side, we have the IRA, uh, but then on the negative side, we have UFLPA enforcement, which is a forced labor act, right? So which holds up a lot of uh, uh, imported solar panels on the on the border. We had a uh, NAM reform in California, which could be a headwind for some players. And, you know, ADCVD uh, enforcement also creates some noise in the space. So uh, what is the best way to get exposure to the positive trends here going to 2023? We think it's through equipment names, right? And I think the first solar particularly is probably the best way to get exposure here. That is a company that manufactures solar panels. It's a U.S. domestic company. You know, it's um, definitely ahead of its competition on domestic capacity additions that would benefit from the IRA. It is my belief that they will announce additional expansion in the near term, uh, and they have a strong balance sheet to finance it. And the FinField models modules are not impacted by UFLPA enforcement at all. And who? And Sophie, <laughs> I missed the name. Who is that? For Solar. For Solar, yeah, uh, and they've done well. Their stock has done. I noted it's, I think, the eighth best performer in the S&P 500 this year. The other, by the way, 10 were, were oil and gas. Are they going to be the, are they, the, they are the big dog, but are they going to be the big winner in the United States? Uh, I, indeed, you are correct. They are one of the best performance now coverage as well. And yet, despite being up 80% year to date, it still screens attractive on valuation, believe it or not. It is trading at 15 times PE on 2024 numbers. And, and uh, these, they make solar panels. They make them in the U.S. They are one of the best positioned names to expand capacity domestically and harvest all these tax benefits from the IRAs. So, yeah, we think they are the one of the best names uh, in the space to get exposure to this, Can, despite this outperformance so far. It's, we've got these, like you said, the Forced Labor Act. They're trying, to, they're trying to prevent these solar panels, which might be made in these forced labor camps for Uyghur Muslims from coming into America. China's been very good at getting around, going through Vietnam or uh, other nations. Can the U.S. compete? Can we make solar panels at a price point that is competitive to even fairly made, whatever you want to call them that, Chinese panels? I think we can make uh, solar panels at the price point that makes solar renewable projects economic for all players. Right. Uh, I don't know if we can pinpoint what a fair, competitively made Chinese panel cost is right now, right? But because due to all of the disruptions in the market, uh, can we make them at below prices in China? Probably not, particularly not silicon, right? Because the value chain is not here. But with the IRA incentives and higher energy prices, we can definitely make it work where the panels are made onshore and the projects do those panels remain economic. Sophie Karp, really appreciate your views. KeyBank Capital Markets, look at it. First, solar. Sophie, thank you. Happy New Year. Thank you. All right, coming up. In much of America, it is still freezing cold outside after that brutal blizzard. But millions of families worry that if they turn up the heat, they may not be able to afford the bill. We'll talk energy poverty coming up.
Right, welcome back. The once-in-a-generation winter storm that swept across the nation this past weekend, forcing millions of families to crank up the heat. All that at a time when the cost of electricity and home heating oil is soaring. In fact, the National Energy Assistance Directors Association says that home heating costs should jump by an average of 17%, and more than that in many other places. Joining us now is the executive director of the NEADA. That is Mark Wolf. Mark, good to have you on. And I feel kind of ashamed about this. In, in November of last year, I went to the U.K. And mm-hmm. I did a story on the potential for this. This is before the war, before the invasion. Happening in the U.K., the choice between heating or eating, I didn't realize it was such a critical problem here as well. So shame on me. How bad is it right now for many families? Well, the situation had far worse because we're having some of the highest prices in 10, maybe 15 years from heating this winter. And, you know, there are lots of reasons it's happening. It's not just one reason, but one of the primary reasons that's finally getting some attention is that we're exporting record amounts of natural gas every year abroad. In fact, the U.S. is now the largest exporter of natural gas. I mean, back in 2017, we exported very little. But since then, we've built, I think, five or six natural gas facilities, liquefied natural gas facilities to export natural gas. And that's putting a lot of pressure on markets. I mean, every year for the last three years was another record year of exports. And so the result is that what's been good for producers has been terrible for consumers. The natural gas is not just used directly for home heating. It's also a primary feeder fuel to produce electricity. So both fuels are going up. You know, in part, it's cold. There are lots of reasons there. In part, there have been refinery issues. But the biggest problem is exports. Now, the federal government has the authority to approve export licenses. Yeah. And one of the clauses in the rule is they have to be in the public interest. So, you know, one of the questions we've had is how are all these exports in the public interest? Well, and, the and public- here's, and here's, the, here's the quandary. And I referenced the UK. I was back in continental mm-hmm. Europe a couple weeks ago, Mark. And I hear mm-hmm. you on the US, but at the same mm-hmm. time, Europe is now desperately reliant on US natural mm-hmm. gas. It's kind of a, a no-win situation, is it not? It's either here or there. Someone's, someone's going to be short. Well, we're not saying to cut off all exports. We're okay. saying the, government, the federal government should think strategically about exports. For example, China is a big purchaser of natural gas. India is a big purchaser. Of course, Europe, because of the war. So I think it's more to think strategically and also think about the impact on U.S. consumers from all these exports. And that, I think, is not being done right now. So I think that in this period of very tight markets, we have to think across the board, how are consumers here being impacted? But also, of course, we don't want people in Europe to freeze or not be able to buy natural mm-hmm. gas. So there are a number of different factors there. Should we repeal they- the Jones Act, the Shipping Act, that prevents U.S., sh- that requires only U.S. ships? There's not many U.S. ships. No, there are none. There are none that can ship natural gas, in fact. So you need a waiver. So for example, if right now there's shortages in New England, and so if a ship that's going to Europe is diverted to New England, you need a waiver of the Jones Act because they have to be U.S. crude, built, and, and so forth for, for ships. I mean, it's kind of a crazy law that goes back generations. So yeah. we were asking for, uh, no, not we, in fact, the, the New England governors were asking for a waiver this winter from the Jones Act so that New England could be protected. But again, it's up to the federal government to prove those waivers. And there are questions about whether the law has outlived its usefulness. 
Yeah, because it's been it's around bad. since uh, basically a hundred year old law that yeah. had its yeah. time. And that'll be for a different special on the Jones and whole Admiralty story, Hour yeah. on CNBC. Mark Wolf right. of the NEA right. doing good work. We appreciate it. Critical, critical issue, by the way, for millions of families. Mark, thank you. All right. When we come back, good news on gasoline prices. With Patrick DeHaan, he will make you smile. We hope. That's next. All right, welcome back to Close Out the Night. We are looking at today's national average price for a gallon of gas. $3.07, down about 20 cents from this time last year, although up from two years ago. But this is good news. Joining us now is Patrick DeHaan. He is the head of Petroleum Analysis at Gas Buddy. Looking at your map, which is fantastic, with the exception of California and, like, us lowly parts of the Northeast, most of and the map is over your, your left shoulder, our viewers' right, most of America is now below three bucks a gallon. Yeah, that's right, Brian. What a way to close out the year and usher into 2023. The lowest prices we've seen really since the summer of 2021 when, of course, things were far different with COVID shutdowns. We've seen a lot this year. National average starting the year at 2022 at $3, hitting four, then five, now back to four. And in some cases, $3 and even $2. So. Uh, a very nauseating ride in store is what we had this year, uh, but certainly some good news as we close the end of the year out with gas prices at their lowest level in 18 months. Any, anything on the horizon, Patrick, that makes you think things can change? I know accidents happen. You were very good about tracking things like refinery. We had some mysterious refinery fires a couple months ago in the mid- Midwest. Anything on your radar? Absolutely, Brian. As we close out the year, some of that extremely cold weather has hampered refineries in some areas of the country where they were affected. The Great Lakes, the Plain States, into Texas as well. That's going to be a continuing model going into the new year is less the price of oil, but more what's going on at the nation's refineries. So look for that to continue into next year. That could be more problematic in the spring when refineries begin their seasonal turnarounds and we start to switch over to more expensive summer gasoline. And that's... That's the story, I think, with gas prices. Everybody says, well, it's the war or it's OPEC or whatever. It might be those things. But we haven't the last major refinery. And I mean, more than 100,000 barrels a day. The last one that we built in America. So the youngest big refinery was built in 1977 when I was six years old in Garyville, Louisiana. If we have one of these big refineries go down because they're trying to run 100%, being goaded by the White House to do so. They don't have the people, whatever. What's going to happen? How, how on the edge, in some ways, are we with just producing gasoline? Well, as we've seen in 2022, there has been very little, basically no breathing room, no margin for error. And to your point, the average age of these facilities, Brian, is tremendous. If these were people, they'd be well taking Centrum Silver by now, some of these facilities over 100 years old. So this is going to be problematic in the year ahead. Some of the refineries that are operating today are, are at or near 100 years old. We, is that correct? It is. I can give you a prime example. The largest refinery here in the Great Lakes down just outside of Chicago in Whiting, Indiana, harkens back to the 1890s when that facility started production. I drink your milkshake. I mean, those were the, you know, that was a very different time. We had one in Philadelphia 
that caught fire and nearly exploded a couple of years ago. I went down and covered covered it. It's now being dismantled. It's permanently gone. I think that was the oldest. I know everybody thinks we're going to be driving all electric in like, I don't know, a couple of weeks or something. Five and a half percent of sales are electric. That, that means that what, you know, bad math, 94 and a half percent are not. Is our demand for gasoline yeah. likely to be a lot higher in 30 years than we think it is today? I, I think it will probably still be up there. And look at what every, everything going on globally right now with, with even Europe, uh, you know, going back temporarily to things like coal, internal combustion engine. A lump of coal, Brian, would have probably been a great Christmas gift this year in Europe. And I think that's what our future here over the next five to 10 years looks like is all this talk about EVs, the infrastructure isn't there, renewables. There's just no way to replace some of the uh, some of the uh, generation by nuclear, uh, by oil, by natural gas. I mean, look at Texas. Much yeah. of their energy is natural gas. So for the foreseeable future, the refining aspect of this conversation will continue. You're not kidding. I actually had a group of tourists when I was in Belgium come up to me and say Santa coal. They wanted coal for kind of a sad joke. Patrick Dehan, really appreciate your view, but gas prices coming down. Thank you very much. All right, folks, thank you for watching tonight's CNBC special on energy. We'll do technology. See you tomorrow, 6 p.m. Eastern. Shark Tank is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.